Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 36. So Acts chapter 2, verses 20, starting at verse 22 and looking at verse 30, through, through verse 36. News. It can change your life. I remember coming home one day. Uh, from work, only to be met by Ellie in the doorway of our little apartment in Louisville. And she told me that she had a treat for me in the oven, which got me very excited. If you don't know, Ellie is an, a really great cook, an even better baker. And so since I was just coming off uh, my shift, working at Aldi, I was kind of hungry. And so I got excited. As I entered the kitchen, I got a little confused because I didn't smell anything cooking. In fact, the oven wasn't even warm, it wasn't even turned on, but I just explained all that away, deciding that whatever she had made me, must, she must have made it in the morning and just left it in there until I got home, which isn't something that she's ever really done, but hey, I was hungry, so I was trying to find an explanation. As I opened the door of the oven, I saw something I did not expect, a pack of hamburger buns, still in the package, sitting on the middle rack. What in the world is going on here, I thought. I mean, who puts plastic in the oven? How is this a treat? This is a fire hazard. And then it hit me. A bun in the oven. Could it be? Yep, it was. We were having a baby. Now, what I remember about that day, besides uh, the, uh, the way that Ellie surprised me and the look on her face as I slammed the oven shut and ran over and hugged her, was the strange mixture of absolute joy with a little bit of fear that I was feeling. Life, it, it, as I stood in the bathroom, I, I thought to myself, this is, this is going to change everything. Our little family was going to be totally different. And I think what I felt the most was realizing this is happening whether we're re- we feel like we're ready or not. I thought we were ready, but now I'm not so sure about this. I knew that that little announcement, that news, was going to completely change our lives. Well, this morning, we're back in Acts 2, picking up where we left off in Peter's sermon that he preached on the day of Pentecost. And we have spent a considerable amount of time over the past couple weeks looking at this important day about what God did on it to equip Jesus' church to be with power to be his witnesses. Last week, we looked specifically at how God has penetrated the darkness of sin, how he penetrated the confusion of the crowd, specifically with the light of his word, preached by Peter and wielded by the power of his Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to be looking at the rest of Peter's sermon, the really the, the substance of what he had to say to the crowd. Uh, to the surprise of the crowd, and perhaps even to ours, we find that the main emphasis of Peter's message was to declare life-changing news to them, to bear witness to the truth concerning Jesus of Nazareth, to identify him as the crucified, risen, and exalted King to declare that God had made Jesus both Lord and Christ. In this moment of God's amazing power, Peter first and foremost declared news to the crowd. News that was objectively true, whether they were ready for it or not. He announced to them, building on the proof of what they had all seen and witnessed that day, that the king had come. This is news 
news that will change your life in the most radical of ways. As I've been preparing to preach this passage, and really as I've been studying the book of Acts as a whole, looking at the uh, at the purpose and the priority of the New Testament church, I've really just been impressed with the stark reality that the mission of the church as the body of Christ is first and foremost to declare the good news that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, that he has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, that he was crucified for sin, that he rose again in victory from the grave, and that he reigns now as the exalted king, calling men and women, boys and girls, from every nation, tribe, and tongue to repent and to believe in him so they may receive forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. That is the mission of the church. The prime directive of the church is to bear witness to the person and the work of Jesus Christ because it's by grace, through faith in him, that we are saved from sin and made right from God. If we leave that priority, then we have departed from God's calling on Christ's people. And so I think it's helpful for us as we study the rest of Peter's sermon this morning, really to refresh ourselves with the substance of the message that we have been called to declare, that Christ is King. So to that end, let us read what Peter said to the crowd in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might, may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, 
this Jesus whom you crucify. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, clearly, the main idea, I think, of this passage is this. That the mission of the church is to proclaim that Christ is King so that people everywhere would receive the blessing of life in his name. As Peter relays this message of good news to the crowd, he demonstrates three things that Jesus does as king, which are vital for the promise and for the hope that we have in his name. And those are going to be our three points that I want to bring out to you this morning. So first of all, we need to see that as king, Jesus faced death. He is a crucified king. Second, we will see that as king, Jesus has secured our life because he is the risen king. Thirdly, we will see that as king, Jesus reigns in glory now. He is the exalted king. Well, first we want to look at what Jesus does as the crucified king. The scandal of the gospel is the scandal of the cross. The cross is what makes the gospel we preach offensive to the sensibilities of man. And yet, Paul declares in Romans 1, verse 16, that this gospel is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Corinthians, Paul writes, that the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it stands that there is no gospel where there is no cross. And therefore, in order to see Jesus rightly, we must see him as the crucified king. When Peter first started preaching to the crowd, he explained to them that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church, this thing that they had witnessed that day, was actually the fulfillment of God's promise, which he gave in Joel chapter 2, verses 28-32, that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on his people. The crowd who stood there listening to Peter preach would have understood that the last days mentioned in Joel's prophecy were days that only would come with the arrival of the Messiah, God's chosen king. So in hearing Peter's explanation, the people in the crowd would have naturally been asking themselves where this Messiah was. And so Peter wastes no time explaining to them that this anointed king had come and that his name was Jesus. Now you've got to understand as you're thinking about the situation going on here that ever since Rome had taken over, the Jewish people were especially hungry for the arrival of the Messiah. Plenty of people had emerged, gathering a following for themselves, maybe uh, even starting a, a little insurrection. But in the end, the, all these self-professed messiahs had failed. And there's something remarkably different about Jesus, a difference which is clearly evident as the Spirit came upon the church on the day of Pentecost. As we see in verse 33, Peter explains to the crowd standing before him that everything they had witnessed that day was the result of the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the one who they were waiting on. That's his goal. That's where Peter's sermon is, all, is, is going to. Why is it then, if that's the goal, that Peter begins the way he does, talking about Jesus' crucifixion? 
is because the cross actually identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Savior of his people. Without the cross, salvation from sin simply isn't possible. In order to testify that Jesus was the Christ, Peter first had to exalt Jesus as the crucified king. Look with me at verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. You can feel the hush rest on the crowd as he announces, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to, to, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, there are three things we need to notice about what Peter says about Jesus, particularly pertaining to his cross. First of all, you need to see how God bore witness about Jesus through his ministry. In John chapter 5, verses 30 through 32, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. A few chapters later in John 8, Jesus explains, The Father who sent me bears witness about me. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, he tells his disciple Philip, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. When Peter looked out on the faces of the crowd that was gathered in front of him that day on Pentecost, he saw familiar faces, faces of men who had witnessed Jesus, his words, and his works of power. These works that had attested to the fact that he was, in fact, the Son of God. The works of Jesus' power were evident to all. They were not done in a corner. They were not done in the shadows. They were not rumor. They were confirmed. And those mighty works, those wonders, those signs, as John is particularly fond of calling them, testified to the authenticity of who he was. He was the Christ. They confirmed that he was, in fact, God's own Son, carrying out the works of his Father in their midst. The second thing you need to see about what Peter says leading up to talking about the significance of Jesus as the crucified Christ is you need to see that though God confirmed and approved Jesus as his own son, the chosen Messiah, and though his works of power were plainly evident to all, Jesus was rejected by men. The Pharisees and the Sadducees did not hate Jesus because they thought that he was some sort of charlatan who had cheap tricks and was trying to get fame and fortune for himself. After all, Nicodemus, a high-standing ruler of the Pharisees, told Jesus in John 3, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. No, the Jewish leaders hated Jesus for what his power demonstrated about who he was, the Son of God. 
They searched and searched the scriptures because they thought that in them they had eternal life. Missing the fact that it was the scriptures who bore witness about Jesus. A witness confirmed by the very voice of the Father and the power of his works so that they refused to come to him so they might have life. In verse 23, we see that Peter actually accuses the crowd here. He says, This Jesus, though he was attested to you by God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. As I read that, I think to myself, what a way to start a sermon, Peter. You're really going to win the crowds over. Only over a little bit of, about a month and a half had gone by since these crowds in Jerusalem had cried out for Jesus' blood to be shed in Pilate's court. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate had asked them. We have no king but Caesar, they shouted back. And so the Lamb of God was led away to be slaughtered on a hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha. As a crucified Christ, Jesus was rejected by men. Which brings us to the third thing we need to see about what Peter points out about the crucified king. We need to see that this rejection of Jesus by man, which led to his crucifixion, was part of God's plan to exalt him as Lord and Christ. This was God's plan. Peter says that all of this took place according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. It was through this rejection, through this suffering, through this sacrifice that God was working to bring salvation to man. Jesus was delivered up. He was betrayed. He was brutalized, torn, shamed, and nailed to a cross where he suffered the wrath reserved for sinners according to the definite plan of God. This is why Jesus came. After all, he explained to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus how the Christ had to suffer. He would not have been the Christ if he had not gone to the cross. Over the years, there have been so many attempts to explain away the scandal of the cross. Some have called it an accident, as if Jesus didn't quite realize what he was getting into. Some have called it a great display of martyrdom and love, and so on. But the Bible will not allow us to expect to, to accept any explanation of the cross other than what Peter gives to the crowd here. That Jesus went to the cross because it was through that cross that he was crowned Lord and Christ. The cross qualifies Jesus as the Christ. He is the cornerstone rejected by men. He is the faithful servant despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief, who, as, who was as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not, Isaiah says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
Friends, Jesus is not the Christ in spite of his suffering. He is the Christ because of it. Philippians 2 tells us that because Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore, Paul says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, likewise, we read in Revelation 5.8 how heaven exalts Jesus with praise, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The humiliation of Jesus on the cross is in fact the occasion of his exaltation. That is why Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, though he preached a crucified Christ, for he knew it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The word of the cross is offensive. It is offensive. Because it exposes us to the harsh reality of our sin. And it demands that we trust in a crucified king. Peter doesn't mince words in this sermon as he addresses the crowd in front of him. He spoke truth. They had rejected Jesus. They had handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. They had stood before the Roman authorities, even though Pilate was trying to figure out a way to get Jesus out of there, and said, he deserves to die. They had rejected the one whom God himself had attested was his own beloved son, in whom he was well pleased. I cannot think of a harsher thing to say to someone than what Peter says to these crowds. That's offensive, not only to them, but to us, being that we are convicted with them. Since the Bible makes it clear that Jesus was crucified not for any sin which he committed, since he was blameless and innocent, but that he was crucified for our iniquities. He died to make atonement for our sin. So we are too to blame. We are, we are to blame in this as well. It stands, as one pastor has put it, that before we can look at the cross as something that is done for us, we must understand that the cross is something done by us. We need to see Christ as the crucified King before we can hope in the life and the salvation that he has purchased for us through that act. We need to see that we need his redeeming work in the first place. We dare not explain away the scandal of the cross. We must embrace it and hope in the atoning work of our crucified king. Now the reason we are able to hope in a crucified king is because Jesus didn't remain dead. So we need to see Jesus not only as the crucified king, but also as the risen king. Our hope is not in the death of Jesus alone, but also in his life. If death had been the end for Jesus, he would have been like every other so-called Messiah who failed before him. 
The majority of Peter's sermon here is actually dedicated not to the conviction of the crowd or to describing the brutality of Jesus' suffering, but we see it's actually dedicated to exalting Jesus as the risen Lord. So if you haven't noticed yet, we're at our second point here, the risen Christ. Look with me at verse 24. In the same way that God appointed for Christ to suffer and to die for sin, Peter tells us God raised him up, loosing the birth pangs or the, the agony of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let me ask you, why was it impossible for Jesus to be held down by death? Well, first... He was, it was impossible for Jesus to be held down by death because his death on the cross had atoned for sin and it had removed the power of death from it. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55 says, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, it was impossible for Jesus to be held down because God had determined to exalt Jesus in victory and perfect justice to show the world that his work on the cross was effective. Third, it was impossible for death to hold Jesus down because God had spoken in his word about how he was determined to exalt Jesus as Lord and Christ before all. Now to make this point, we see that Peter cites two important psalms from David. Which, are, which concern God's purpose of exalting Jesus as the risen Christ. Now you see the first one there in verses 25 through 28, which is taken from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Peter tells the crowd how David, speaking of Jesus, says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Starting in verse 29, Peter explains to the crowd why this psalm, in particular, applies to Jesus and not to David. Brothers, he says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So clearly, Peter is saying, David, though he was a man after God's own heart, was not above sin. He was not able to deliver himself from death. Rather, David was hoping in the one who was to come, a son whom God had promised to him, who would reign eternally. Peter says, being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn this oath, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now, it's even more clear, I think, that Jesus could not be the Christ, from what, Paul, from what Peter said, that he could not be the Christ if he, had first not, if he had not first gone to the cross. Since we see from what David says that the Christ had to rise. God the Father attested and approved Jesus in both his life and his death. That is why the resurrection matters. In verse 32, Peter declares, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So the cross and the empty tomb are both essential to Jesus' work as the promised chosen king. 
In his death, he atoned for sin. In his life, he secured victory for us, so that death no longer has hold of God's people, but they are united with Jesus in a life like his. You know, Peter says that David's words in Psalm 16 were spoken concerning Christ. But as we read them, I think we can also see the hope that is ours in Christ since our lives are secured in his. Because Jesus, our Savior, overcame the grave, we have no fear of death either. Because he is with us, we will not be shaken, for nothing can separate us from his love. Therefore, our hearts are glad because we share in the joy of his life. We know that he will not abandon us because he's broken the hold that death had on us. He makes known to us the path of life and he fills our hearts with gladness in his presence as the Spirit abides in us. This life, this life that David spoke of when he talked about what the the Christ was going to do, is our inheritance as well when we are joined to Christ by faith. He does not simply redeem us from death. He also redeems us for life. As Paul says in Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So as important as it is for us to see Jesus as the crucified Christ, it is just as important for us to see Jesus as the resurrected Christ who has made atonement once for all for the sins of his people. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds the church how he delivered to them as a matter of first importance what he himself also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then to many other witnesses, including later on, Paul. Paul even goes, uh, he goes a little bit further to show the Corinthians that if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then their faith in him would be in vain. We would still be lost in our sins, Paul says. But Christ is alive, having been raised from the dead, so that just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Our hope in a crucified king is as a hope that has been established on the bedrock of Jesus' resurrected life. His resurrected life vindicates the effect of his death. And that leads us now to consider the third aspect of Jesus' kingship. He is reigning as the exalted king. So he is the crucified king. He is the risen king. He is the exalted king. No view of Jesus is complete without seeing him as the exalted king that he is. Now, to this point in his sermon, Paul has, or sorry, Peter has testified to the crowds how Jesus overcame sin and death through his own death. He has witnessed to the crowd about how God had raised Jesus from the dead, loosing the pangs of death in accordance with the scriptures. And now in verse 33 he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, that's Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but as he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, 
in the days leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus had told his disciples, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Well, clearly, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, came, just as Jesus said that he would. It's at this point in Peter's sermon that we've really come full circle in what happened on the day of Pentecost. The significance of this mighty work of God's power on the day of Pentecost, which was evident to all of these people, has now been explained to them. The wonder and the mystery of this display of God's power on this day was showing that God had accomplished His redemptive purposes through the death, resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. On this day, the Holy Spirit arrived as promised by Jesus and given by the Father to equip the church to bear witness that the promised King had arrived. I really love how Peter, at the end of his sermon, goes to Psalm 110, verse 1, showing how God had exalted David's throne through Christ in a way that no one had really anticipated up to this point. You may remember that this was the same scripture that Jesus had stumped the Pharisees with in Matthew chapter 22 when he asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And when they answered him, The son of David, he said to them, Then how is it that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? we're told that the Pharisees had no answer for Jesus and that no one dared to ask him questions after that because they didn't want to be humiliated like that. But as Peter quotes David's words to the crowd, we know that he knew the answer. As a man, Jesus was in fact David's son. He had taken on flesh. He was born as a man in the line of David, the rightful heir of the throne. Likewise, Jesus in his divinity had retained his divine nature. He was, in fact, David's Lord because he was also the Son of God. After the resurrection, Jesus stayed on the earth for a time to set the church in order. We read, we read about that in Acts chapter 1, verses 1-9. through 9, But we also see that Jesus didn't remain on the earth. We're told that he ascended into heaven where he reigns and rules at the right hand of his Father in the fullness of his glory, thus fulfilling what David had spoken of in the Spirit in Psalm 110, verse 1. When we started the book of Acts, I said that whereas Luke's gospel tells us about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the work of Christ, the book of Acts tells us about how Jesus has expanded that kingdom work through his body, the church, here on earth. That kingdom expansion, according to what Jesus said in John chapter 14, is happening because he has been exalted by his Father as Lord and Christ. The Holy Spirit, who was at work in the church on the day of Pentecost, equipping the apostles and the disciples to be witness, is also at work in us, for the same work of gospel 
proclamation. As we think about Jesus' call on our lives, both as individual disciples, as followers of Jesus, and also as members of a local church, it is important that we preach a gospel that exalts Jesus the way that Peter did, as the crucified king, the risen king, and the exalted king. We share Peter's desire in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain, without a shadow of a doubt, that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. That is our message. That is our message. When Ellie told me the good news that we were expecting Titus, it was the news itself that completely changed my life. Honestly, it really affected both of us. It changed the way we thought about our money. It, thought, it changed the way we thought about our house, our vehicles, our jobs, our relationships. It, it affected daily decisions that we made and what we prioritized. The good news of the gospel of Jesus has an even greater impact on our lives. And I think one of the issues in the church today is that we have lost sight of the fact that it is this message that changes people's lives. We are tempted sometimes to take it upon ourselves to somehow work, or, or work around maybe the offense of the gospel or work in people or try to lure them as it might be to come and trust Jesus. Just come trust Jesus and you'll be saved. And it'll be all good. And we try to convince them of this instead of just preaching the gospel to them and trusting the word to work. When we look at the church in the New Testament, they weren't trying to, to, to soften any of the blows of the gospel. If anything, they were trying to get things out of the way. And in the same way, we need to trust God to work in that word. This is a word which is true, which if it finds its root in you, will alter the very affections of your heart. As we look at how, the, as, at how the crowd responded to this message next week, I think we'll, we'll look a little bit more about how deeply this message changes lives. But for now, I, I think it's just important for Peter's sermon to impact us as a church, particularly in the way that we think about our mission and our message. Our primary goal as a church must always be to testify to who Jesus is, to what he has done, and that means testifying to the world, as Peter did, that King Jesus has come, that he was crucified for sin, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules, and that he is coming back. We must consider ourselves first and foremost messengers who've been sent to share this life-changing news, calling our neighbors and our friends and our families and our co-workers to find life and salvation in this Savior. Let us expend our lives to this end. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the way you have exalted Jesus. Through your own testimony, through the powerful works that he did on earth. Through his death and his suffering, through his resurrected life, and through his current reign and rule. Father, it's so easy to be distracted by other ends, noble things to do, 
but which are not ultimate things compared to this message. And we just pray, Father, that you would give us hearts that burn with a desire to make much of Jesus by proclaiming him as the crucified king, the risen king, and the exalted king. And we pray, Father, that as we share the good news of Jesus' coming, that the, our neighbors and our friends and our families and, and, and people we have one-time interactions with in this world would see and know that Jesus is in Christ, is the Christ, so that he might be exalted as the Lord that he is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.